back to Light Shed Live. We recently had the opportunity to interview Telesat President and CEO Dan Goldberg. Dan, as well as Telesat, have a long history in satellite connectivity. We discussed their most recent ambition to launch a global LEO constellation. We discussed the applications that this new LEO constellation would address, the market sizes for those applications, and the opportunity for the company to generate billions of dollars of recurring revenue within five years of the Constellation's launch. Investors appear to have assigned no incremental value to this LEO Constellation on top of the value that is supported by the free cash flow of the legacy business. Finally, we outline the timeline of upcoming events, where the finalization of its contract with TELUS could lead to the financing by the export credit agencies, which would further lead to more enterprise contracts to fill up the capacity before even launching the Constellation. We hope the interview established a fundamental baseline for understanding what Telesat's trying to accomplish and look forward to dive into further details on smaller calls with the management team going forward. Enjoy. Daniel, thank you for joining us. And why don't you, I think, maybe start off with kind of your um, origin story and how you ended up in this industry? Okay. All right. Well, uh, Walt, first off, thanks for uh, making the time to have me on to talk about what's going on at Telesat. I appreciate it and appreciate everyone else who's uh, participating. I think we've got a great story to tell and uh, we welcome the opportunities uh, to, to tell it. I mean, my background, you you kind of summarized it. I came into the satellite industry not through uh, the technical path, which a lot of my colleagues uh, have done, but through the legal slash regulatory path. Um, I arguably came by it honestly. My my dad is uh, a, a regulatory lawyer, uh, telecom, you know, in Washington D.C. So I kind of grew up with it. Um, I went to law school, uh, and after coming out of law school, I ultimately joined up uh, working with my dad. That would have been in the 90s. He represented a bunch of, you know, broadcasters, computer companies, cell companies, but he also represented a company called Panamsat, uh, which is a real pioneer in the satellite industry. I was doing a lot of work for Panamsat, uh, and I loved it. I just... I. I love the technology. I love the in- international nature uh, of the business. You know, we had customers, they had customers all over the world. Um, and I loved it so much, uh, I decided to join Pan Amsat, which my dad didn't love uh, at the time. <laughs> um, but yeah, I wanted just to get closer to it. And so, but it turned out I didn't stay at Pan Amsat for all that long. Uh, Intelsat was under an enormous amount of pressure. And we were one of the companies applying it to yep. privatize. They were an IGO at the time. So anyway, Intelsat spun out a company called New Skies. Yep. I think I was employee number two there. I was their general counsel uh, starting in 1998. And um, yeah, two years later, I was the chief operating officer. I think about two years after that, I was the CEO and that, yeah, that was my path into the industry. It was kind I mean, of so largely lifelong living and breathing in this industry. So when you took over um, this position in in two thousand six, have, having all the stuff that you've seen of the history, um, you know, in the industry, what was your vision at that time for where you wanted um, to take Telesat? I mean, in all honesty, I was hired by Bell Canada. Uh, who owned Telesat 100% at the time to sell Telesat. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it was... Uh, uh, so your uh, vision was monetization. <laughs> it was. It wasn't just my vision. It was my mandate. Uh, <laughs> and so, um, and we did it. You know, I showed up here in September of 2006. And, you know, in December of 06, we announced a sale to the the the, the two of our still largest shareholders, who yep. uh, is Laurel, um, and then um, a big Canadian pension fund. At the time, they weren't as big as they are today, but uh, PSP. And then I stuck around. And then we can, you know, so I mean, really, the vision was um, 
So when did the vision then evolve from, hey, I did my job, I checked the box, I sold this, I brought these two investors in to like, okay, now we're sitting on this legacy business that, you know, like all satellites has a finite end. And what do we do now? When did that start to take formation? You know, when, so these guys acquired the company, you know, we have these long regulatory review periods when, whenever you're trying to close a transaction, we had to integrate Laurel Skynet into Telesat. So that was a big focus. But at the time, um, our, our DTH business was growing. This was, you know, late 2006, 2007. There was yep. no Netflix. There was no over-the-top video. Um, the direct-to-home satellite business in and our Dish, video Dish, Dish being a major customer. Are you, do you carry um, DirecTV as well on, on your satellites or no? No, it was it was Dish. It was in Canada, Bell. Bell. Yep. It was Shaw. Those are the two DTH platforms in Canada. And there, there were lots of, you know, different elements of our business that were growing, yep. but nowhere at the pace and, and, and the big kind of chunkiness that the DTH business was growing and HD video was coming. Yep. So that, that was the focus. The focus was, you know, supporting our customers, yep. uh, growing their satellite capacity so they could grow their video channels and so that they could make a transition to S from SD to HD, which was more bandwidth consumptive. Um, yeah, the, and that was the vision. And then uh, the iPhone hit in 2007 and streaming broadband started to, you know, to get better for us all. Um, you know, so the world obviously changed over that period. It and- was about 2012 mm-hmm. that I'd say maybe a little bit later that we started to become cognizant of the fact that right. uh, the world was changing, um, that uh, the director I mean, at some point, I don't know whether it was as early as 2012, but Charlie Ergen himself was talking about <laughs> the, the challenges that ultimately his business has faced. But so, yeah, so you- and Charlie at the time, you know, I can't remember when he bought sling, mm-hmm. but that, you know, in some ways was kind of, I don't know, I think their first yeah. nod towards, Hey, this whole internet thing could be very disruptive and, and we need to, you know, figure out, uh, a path for that. So, so, you know, you know, we, we weren't oblivious to what was going on and what was very clearly going on, whether it was, you know, in respect of our video business, Mm -hmm. the the services that we were providing to telcos, ISPs, mobile network operators, government users, just everything was going IP. Everything was going broadband and we need to position ourselves to capture that explosive growth and to, um, yeah, be able to support our customers as their requirements. Right. So, and so at that time, um, I mean, you had Viasat putting up satellites and, and Echostar delivering internet connectivity via stationary satellites. So, and, and that was maybe one way to look at it. And that's, that's how you were delivering your broadcast services. Obviously you built an enterprise business as well. So at what point during this continuum, did you say like, Hey, maybe as these, as we, you know, run out the revenue for these legacy services, whether it's for dish or for enterprise or whatever it is over some period of time that, our new investment should be a Leo constellation as opposed to maybe putting out, finding customers and putting up more stationary satellites. Yeah. Just a couple of things about that. And the, the first thing I, I want to just observe is before I got to Sat, uh, to Telesat in 2006, Telesat was already a, a, a real, I mean, Telesat's been around for 53 years now. Everyone likes to think of themselves as an innovative company. You know, we, we, we genuinely, have a, a long tradition of, of innovation. I'll, I'll come to your question, but but just want to note, we were a pioneer in the direct-to-home satellite business. We were a pioneer in the uh, satellite uh, internet delivery business. The very first KA band, you know, kind of high throughput satellite that was launched for direct-to-consumer internet that Wild Blue, before being acquired by Viasat, you know, uh, used to launch their service was Anik F2, 
that tell us that was, you know, we had worked with which Anik F2 for our broader listeners. That's the name of the actual satellite that's del- <laughs> that got launched. That's delivering yeah, this yeah, connectivity. Yeah. Yeah, I apologize. Yes. That, that would have okay. been back in like 2005 or four that that satellite was launched. And it was, it was, you know, now you look back at it, you know, 15, 16 years later, it looks pretty clunky, but at the time, First KA band, high throughput, direct to consumer, uh, two way internet broadband companies. So, so, and, but, the, and, but, the, and the business case for that, let's just to go back, is like you, you launch this satellite, you have an idea of the amount of capacity that you're going to utilize and you price it. At, and so, how did that turn out? Like, how did Annex uh, F2 turn out in terms of those returns? In retrospect, and I, you know, uh, have, I'm, I'm run, but, but it, it, it ended up great, to be honest yeah. with you. Now, you know, Wild Blue took and and look, Anik F2 had that two-way K band service. It also had a big C band payload. It also had a KU band payload that Shaw was using for direct-to-home satellite services right. in Canada. You all all three, these letters being different chunks of spectrum that you're launching and using to connect to devices on the ground. Or thank you again. Yeah, yep. no, you're right. Thank you for uh translating my uh, <laughs> no problem speak here um but but what you had though was three business cases underwriting a big investment in that satellite and so the returns on that investment would have been massively attractive wild yep, yep. blue struggled uh, uh pioneering the you know direct to consumer you know uh, by satellite internet business they were ultimately mm-hmm. bought by viasat yep. um but for Telesat and our shareholders, that was a great investment. Um, so so but, but, what but, you learned that that things that worked versus not worked, what made you decide that, okay, if if um, if one satellite was a great return, it's geo, like what made the company's decision to say like, okay, for our next large investment, you know, Leo Constellation is the way to go as opposed to maybe doing more. Uh, it came in steps. So, so the first thing we started to do to, tackle this, you know, explosive growth we were seeing for broadband connectivity was build geostationary high throughput satellites. Mm-hmm. And and that was our uh Telstar 19V satellite, which so the Telstar also- so a Telstar geostationary, it sits, it orbits with the Earth and the beam comes down and it lights up in which what was the geographic area for that particular satellite? The Americas. So okay. to your point, it sits at 36,000 kilometers or it's like 23,600 miles above Earth yep. in geostationary orbit. It had fixed multiple beams looking yep. down from Latin America all the way up to northern Canada. Um, it's a, a mix of, of different spectrum bands, KA yep. band for these high throughput services, KU band for other services. Um, and, and, and at the time, uh, it, it delivered to our customers and to the market, what, what it needed. Um, but what is, what has changed then that just putting up another one of those with a different spectrum band, um, you know, or slicing it down didn't make as much sense as embarking upon a Leo constellation. So the answer, um, is a longish one and I'll, I'll try to be you know, succinct, um, there were a couple of things that persuaded us that to properly uh, address this strong demand for broadband connectivity that we were seeing, we needed to go from GEO, 36,000 kilometers up, to LEO. Our LEO constellation is around 1,000 to 1,200 kilometers above the earth. But the first and foremost, it was it is our belief that uh, low latency broadband connectivity is crucial to, to provide the customers what they want. And when I say low latency, what that means is very little delay in the time it takes for you know the bit to go. So give us, from- so give us a sense of that because I think you know for our listeners, if you had a cell phone. Um, and you did a speed test, your latency would be in terms of like, let's say 30 milliseconds. If I, if you're on a fiber connection, let's say you have Fios um, and you do a latency and maybe you have five milliseconds. 
if so, give us the difference between in that context, like geostationary, the old ones, the legacy versus Leo, what that latency looks like. Yeah. So geostationary going all the way up to 36,000 kilometers and back down to the earth again, about on average, 850 milliseconds of delay. So almost a second, right? A thousand milliseconds, you're at a second. Doesn't sound like a ton, but the way the internet works is, you know, you send some bits, they get acknowledged. You send some more bits, they get acknowledged. So that one second of latency or delay keeps getting multiplied over and over again. Is it do you need low latency for every single type of you know uh, uh, transmission? No, um, but do you need it for lots and lots like cloud connectivity, like uh, e-commerce transaction, any transaction that's encrypted that gets you to e-commerce, that gets you to cloud activity, just surfing the internet and 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 watching how long it takes for a page to load. There have been all sorts of testing by all sorts of folks about just how long a user will will wait around for that to happen. And what our customers were telling us was that low latency was vital for them. Now, what we kept telling them was, no, we think you have it wrong. We can spoof, (laughs) we can cache things at the edge of the network. But... But sooner or later, um, so what is so what ends up so if it's 800 milliseconds, what is the latency that you're expecting to get um, with your Leo constellation? Oh, it's you know it's it's here again on average it's like you know probably somewhere between 15 and 30 milliseconds, which is basically a cell phone. Exactly, it's transformational, and it's it, it it is it is the functional equivalent of fiber for some connectivities, it'll be faster than fiber. Um, so how much of the, how much of this decision also came in the fact that again, getting back to the geo where you're over the Americas, when you have a Leo constellation, now your satellites are closer to the earth and spinning around the globe. So it opens up a global market opportunity. Is that something that factored into the decision or was it like, okay, look, we have all these enterprise customers that we can address in the Americas and the other stuff is just bonus, or was that part of where you think the market opportunity exists? We, listen, if we um, if we believed that you could um, effectively serve your customers from geo for you know enterprise grade broadband connectivity, yeah, we could have gotten other geostationary orbital slots around the rest of the world and done that. What you can't do from geo is serve the the poles, right? If you picture a satellite, you know, at that geostationary orbit that we were talking about, and it's looking down on the earth, again, it's over the equator, because the earth is curved, it can't see over the equator. And so you think, all right, well, who cares how many people live up, you know, in the North and South Pole, but there are users that want full global polar coverage. If you're um, an airline and your planes are going over over the poles and they do a lot, if you're a maritime customer and the Northwest Passage is opening up, if you're a government user and you want full global capacity. So there are important verticals that want full global coverage. So Leo was important for that. It was important for low latency First and foremost, it was important to give full global coverage. And that, and by that, I really mean including over the poles. And then it was important for a couple of other things. We believe that you can get more capacity to any one place on earth from Leo, much better from Leo than you can at Geo. And that's just a function of, of having from a single point on Earth, being able to see multiple low Earth orbit satellites. And if you design those satellites right, the ability to to point your capacity where you want to point it. And so what we can do, and we'll come to our lightspeed constellation, but what we can do for any point on Earth 
they'll, you know, on average be able to see somewhere between three and six of our LEO satellites. If we want, we can have all six of those satellites focusing all of their capacity on on one, you know, small point on Earth. You just can't do that from way up in right, geo. which is which also I don't want to get into the technology now, but it's also an interesting concept because I know that Starlink specifically is having some challenges at the FCC right now in terms of the number of satellites that their terminals can connect with in the United States. But we will get to that later. So when you look at the um, the LEO, the, what you've described, is this existing customers wanting this greater functionality? Or do you think that the, is it specifically, are you going to have to have a sales force that opens you up to new customers? Like how much, when you look at the opportunity of the Lightspeed LEO constellation, how much is exploiting the existing relationships with their growth and perhaps replacement, as well as new opportunities that you don't even touch today? First off, I'd say the same old verticals we have been serving for the last, you know, bunch of decades. It's, it's you know, we, we and we think of four key verticals that we're focused on with our Lightspeed Constellation. One is providing uh, backhaul connectivity to mobile network operators, telcos, ISPs, other which enterprises. Means that, which means that, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm on my cell phone. My cell phone connects to a cell tower. In this case, the cell tower is not in Manhattan, so it's not connected to fiber. It's somewhere in the middle of Utah or somewhere else. And in order for that phone, that, that cell tower to connect back to the internet, it's going to connect up through a satellite. Correct. Yeah. It's going, it, it's when you're serving mobile network operators, you're, you're serving their towers. If you're serving an energy company that has a remote facility, you know, now so when you look at that market, I think a lot of people would say, well, I hear these, I get on a T-Mobile conference call and they're saying they're fiber to 98% of their cell sites. So when you look at that connectivity of terrestrial networks, is it more the private networks of utility companies and mining companies and things like that? Is it a combination or is it just that look there are a number of cell sites that that even public network operators have throughout the world that need this satellite connectivity. Give us a little bit more detail it's on both. that market. It's okay. it's 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 both. It, it is in in developed countries like Canada, like the United States. Yes, the majority of the population is probably going to be served uh, from a tower that's connected to fiber, no doubt. But then you will have on the edge of the network, and it'll be. In big rural states, Alaska is a good example, but you know there are lots of other rural states here in Canada. I'm speaking to you from Ottawa, Ontario, at the moment. Um, Canada is a huge country; it has to be connected. The, the users, the government, enterprises are very focused on making sure that we have ubiquitous, high-quality broadband connectivity. It ain't going to be done by fiber everywhere. It'll be some mix of satellite and, and, and microwave in, in, in our view. And then you go to developing countries that might not have as extensive, many of them, as a high capacity, reliable terrestrial network. It, 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 it's going to be a mix of all of that, Walter. So, um, so if you just, I mean, what, so when you've described the overall market for the, the constellation, you've kind of taken a top-down approach. We discussed this a little bit in the last earnings call, which is you said, if the total market for all global connectivity is 430 billion, that you think that within five years upon the constellation launch, that you can, you know, address or get one to one percent of the market or four billion dollars of revenue. So if we just go the opposite way from the bottom, I was going to say, I mean, I you know, I was going to let you finish and then I was going to contradict you, uh, but I'll just jump no, in. And no, go ahead, contradict me, please. Interrupt. Uh, I do that no, all we, the time. We we've done the opposite of taking. Uh, uh, a top-down approach. Probably when we describe it, I mean, to 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 describe the bottoms-up approach that we took um, uh, it takes quite some time. I mean, so so for us, we well, I'll tell you what we've done. You know, and we and, you know I've, I've talked about this a little bit, um, probably in response from a question from from you. Um, we, we took each of these verticals and, and, and the biggest vertical that, that we think, the one that will be producing the most revenue for us is that terrestrial backhaul connectivity vertical. We, we, we think that'll be the biggest. What, what we did at Telesat is we divided the world. It wasn't me. We've got a whole group of people that, that, that do this. We divided the world into about 
I think it's 120,000 polygons, right? Like mm-hmm. every, and, and, and when I say the earth, I mean, I, now I'm talking about land, not, yeah, yeah. not oceans, because the, the, that was a whole separate analysis for maritime and arrow. But just take that one vertical. Roughly, uh, the you know, we divided the land, you know, masses up into about 120,000 polygons. Within each of those polygons, we looked at every tower in each of those polygons, you know, as a starting point. Then we made some assumptions about, you know, how the, the those towers would develop over time. And then within each of those polygons, we looked at how much fiber there was today. We looked at population density, because that's important when you're figuring out, does fiber make sense? Does microwave make right. sense? And did you factor in the fact that capital is very cheap and that there was going to be lots of fiber builds, maybe not into the most rural? Right. Look, I mean, we've been doing this for a long time. Capital- right. So when you when you work that all up, A, you've got the existing towers that might be connected, what, to a, an existing geostationary satellite. Yeah, I mean, well- no, okay. There's some of that. Yeah, yeah. Keep and then going. you have, and then you have new towers that are going to get built, right? That are going to need some type of connectivity. So when yeah. you looked at these thousand hexagons or whatever polygons or whatever uh-huh, shape yeah. you want, trapezoids, um, did, what was what ended up being the market opportunity just for that one application that you think the Leo constellation could address? Yeah, that was for us. You know, probably a little bit shy of about. 200 billion. 200 and, billion. And, and 200 billion, I should say, out in like 2025, right? So we made some projections about, you know, it takes a little while to build the constellation. Um, I mean, that just seems like a just an, an a like crazy number, meaning that the size of it seems so large. And is the reason for that that it's just global, right? We're talking about like is oh, there other yeah. It, 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 so it's, what are the number of sat, what are the number of of cell sites that you're referencing in, in this scenario if there is one? Oh, I'm uh, double clicking on that. Yeah, 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 you know, maybe uh, Michael can step in from the back. Walt, it's thirty. Yeah, oh, yeah, my, <laughs> no, oh, I'm kidding. No, I mean, frankly, who who we need and fr- who yeah. I was hoping I could have sitting in the back, but he's so. But so, it, so if you think if you think about it, a cell site is just an extension to get the end user, like why not? extend your target market to the consumer market and, you know, offer stuff like Starlink and OneWeb and I guess um, Kuiper over time hopes to address. So, um, yeah, a couple of reasons why uh, to date we've been focusing Lightspeed on the um, enterprise market. And when we say enterprise market, it almost means everything but the direct-to-consumer market. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of reasons. One, um, uh, it's not in our DNA. We've never been a, a, a direct-to-consumer uh, uh, enterprise. Um, lights, we're, we're, we're very good at what we do. We see a huge opportunity uh, to, to, to stick to... Um, kind of our business model and just scale it dramatically with, with serving light speed. So some of it maybe was, I don't know, some insecurity about taking on uh, providing, you know, uh, B to C services is a very different uh, activity than providing B to B businesses. So one, we saw a very profitable opportunity just to do what we that, That's number one. Number two, from a technology perspective, we believe that um, in order to very effectively serve that direct-to-consumer market, you need a very low-cost, very, very capable antenna that can go onto the homes you know, of, 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 of the consumer. And we had some skepticism that we'd be able to uh, get to the right price point in, in, in the right time frame. That was another factor. Um, three, um, to serve the direct-to-consumer market effectively, we would have had to scale the constellation to what would probably be, I don't know, some low thousands number of satellites. The, for us, you know, we're, we're, we're very, very focused on being 
uh, very capital efficient. We always have it. It's one of right. The and, and just to put that into some context in itself. Now, granted, every sa- satellite can be different costs and have different lifespans. Um, but your constellation is targeting, I believe it's now 188 total to get global coverage, 78 polar and, and 110 inclined. To put context around that Starlink, there's already 2,400 in orbit with 4,400 planned. Now, granted, maybe um, SpaceX has driven the cost of those satellites down. They might have lower costs. There's obviously, at least up to this point, hasn't been the ability for the satellite to communicate with each other, which I know is is planned um, in your constellation. But so it's basically just a return, in part, a return on capital for the market you were going after. Yeah, yeah. You know, we that's uh, that's kind of how we're driven. You know, we've been investing billions of dollars in 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 space for you know over five decades now, and that's exactly how we think about it. And you know, the the nature of this business, the nature of any big infrastructure business, spend all your money up front before you have kind of a nickel of revenue and EBITDA coming back. And so the pressure there is on the operator that's deploying that capital is you need to ramp your utilization fast. You need to get pricing, you know, that, that, that uh, gives you, you know, it's not rocket science, it's utilization and it's rate per kind of unit. And then it's how long of a time do you have with that asset? How long is it revenue producing to earn, earn your returns? So that's a hundred percent how we thought about it. If we were less constrained by those sorts of financial metrics, I don't know, maybe we would have designed a different constellation. So but- if we look so if we look then at the $200 billion enterprise market, and when when again when we look at that number, in your mind, that is $200 million addressable from satellite connectivity. And is that primarily because the Leos? We would have- say, yeah, yeah, we would say Leo, we, low latency. Well, that's what I was going to say. Primarily, it's because you have that low latency. You wouldn't, if I had a hodgepodge of, of geos all around, that's, that market is not addressable. It's the difference in this address, the size of a market is specifically about the low latency that we discussed earlier. It's about the low latency. It's about the fact that the service that we'll be providing will be indistinguishable from fiber connectivity in terms of the, the 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 standards that it's meeting all the telcos have all these standards right now we're not compliant with those with our current satellites but but because of the low latency because of other functionality that we're building into the constellation yes it will be indistinguishable from the user's perspective from some you know generic fiber connectivity and yes we believe that that allows us to serve a larger market than we can serve today. So if you're getting small, low single digits of this very sizable market, your revenue is you know, potentially several billion dollars. Talk to us in terms of how quickly that can ramp up. And is the initial focus really going to be on government? Is it going to be on enterprise? How does that mix shift in terms of the revenue opportunity um, evolve from year one till the time you're kind of really kind of in the flow of it by in year five? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, it, it, we, we think the terrestrial uh, vertical and probably the maritime vertical will probably ramp the fastest I, I, with the big caveat, everything else being equal. And we're going to be focused on closing big, you know, uh, deals in each of those verticals pre-launch, right? So, but in our own minds, um, the terrestrial vertical, the maritime vertical, those will probably ramp the earliest just in terms of- So, And how do we see that prior to launch? Do we see you announcing contracts with telcos saying we are going to connect a certain number of their yeah. cell sites, announcing yeah. contracts with with uh, shipping companies or like who, who in the maritime yeah. area? Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. It'll be um, cruise ship operators. It'll be some uh, uh, integrators that serve the uh, uh, maritime transport market, serve the, the high-end yacht market, um, serve some of the smaller cruises, maybe do some uh, arrangements uh, directly with some of the cruise guys. It, it, it will depend 
but that's what it's going to look like. And, and, yes. and how does that sales cycle work? If you, since you don't yet have a satellite launched, I mean, are they willing to sign lines, dotted lines, are there deposits? When does the, it, you know, it, it will, um, and, and look, we know this from building satellites for a whole lot of years now. Um, once we're building satellites, once we're launching satellites, we're doing in orbit testing with customers in each of these different verticals. We'll be signing contracts as, as, as we go along and as we approach the go live date for the constellation. And so right con- now, sitting here today, we've got about, these are Canadian dollars, about $750 million of, of contractual backlog, take yep. or pay, already under contract. And before we've even really started building the constellation in earnest, once we start building and 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 we're out there talking to customers in every vertical, you know, today, yep. and we're serving a lot of them with our geo satellites, as we get closer to the in-service state of the constellation, we'll be announcing more and more uh, uh, agreements. And how do those contracts look and how do, how are we going to see them being booked in terms of income? Are these 10, 20-year contracts? Is it cash up front and then you straight line it? Like, how does how does your, your typical- Yeah, no, my, my expectation is that- um, for a lot of these, they, they won't be cash up front, I don't believe. You know, we've done some deals like that in the past. Um, would we, you know, be receptive to doing some deals like that in the future? Yeah, potentially. Um, but I think in the main, uh, it will be probably on average a three to five year uh, agreement with a given customer and a given vertical. The government users you know, have typically signed one-year deals that are renewable. That's all about budget authorities and whatnot. But the reality is I think there'll be sort of three to five-year deals. My expectation is they'll have committed ramps mm-hmm. uh, in them. Yep. Yeah. There'll be, you know, fixed price uh, um, rates uh, that will have agreed with the customer. Um, there'll be, you know, for our high-end enterprise users, it's not going to be some best efforts connectivity. It'll be, you know, CIR, so committed information rate, where we commit to having a certain amount of throughput for each of their fill-in-the-blank, you know, uh, planes, uh, uh, boats. Um, that That's what it'll look but these, like. But these satellites are obviously going to last longer than than five years on their own, not to mention that it's a constellation, unlike a geo where once that one satellite goes down, the services on it obviously cease um, to occur. So you can obviously re- over time with CapEx replace some of these satellites. So why not, um, or, or what portion of, of these contracts could you get 10-year uh, or 15-year leases, do you think? You know, I said three to five year on average. I, I think it's going to be a mix. There'll be some agreements that will potentially be, you know, the life of, you know, the, uh, of, of the initial constellation to your point. It's almost, it, with the geostationary satellite, they, they tend to last about 15 years and then you replace it. Yeah. I think these Leo constellations will be a little bit more organic uh, yeah. in terms of, of how they're refreshed and expanded over time. But, but, but I think there will be some customers that will be comfortable signing a 10-year longer-term deal. I think there are other customers that are only going to want to go year to year. I think there are other customers that, you know, three to five, but I bet you on average, it'll be around that three to five. That That's my guess. I haven't done this for a while. So in your sales cycle to date, you know, does the financing question uh, come up? So maybe we can skip to that. And I guess the last, you know, I guess you were, you talked about um, well, let's back up. Um, the so- the cost of this constellation, I think you've sized at what um, about five billion U.S. six and a half Canadian, right? So yeah, what we've said is is that the the capital investment will be approximately five billion U.S. Right. So and and a key component of that is um, financing from um, the export credit agencies, which I think we're looking for. Additional clarity on your the vendor partner. Um, tell us. Um, so where where does that kind of stand in terms of give us the update on on where your vendor partner is in terms of the timing of getting this thing launched, how supply chain has an impact, and and how do you think 
getting that final piece in the puzzle, but most importantly, framing it up in terms of like, is that, has that been an issue in terms of your dialogue with signing up new contracts for the constellation? Yeah, all good questions. So, um, so the supply chain challenges that, that we're seeing, you know, not just in the, in the space industry, but consumer electronics, automotive. I mean, it's, it's everywhere right now. It, it, it has, uh, it's delayed our program and it's, and it's made it cost more, uh, supply chain issues and inflation coming at the same time have presented some challenges that, Mm -hmm. that I've been speaking about, I think, you know, pretty openly on our calls. So, so how it's impacted our program. Um, we were working with uh, our prime contractor, which we've said is Talas Alenia Space. It's a joint venture between Talas, the French, you know, sort of aerospace company, and Leonardo, the Italian aerospace company. They have a joint venture called Talas Alenia Space that has been the leading manufacturer of satellite constellations for the last 10 years. They, you know, did the original O3B constellation for SES. They did the Gen 2 Iridium constellation for Iridium. So we had a contract uh, uh, um, with Talos. We had a a, a proposal, firm fixed price. It had a price. It had a schedule. It had a number of satellites and all of that. We were using that case to work with our financing sources to secure the $5 Plus, you know, that we need to, to, to build this. And then it was back in, I think it was October of last year, Q4, Talos came to us and said, because of these supply chain issues, yep. because of this inflationary environment that we're in, we can no longer support the schedule and the price. Now, price came a little bit later yep, um, yep. that, 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 you know, uh, we've originally spoke to you about, and that was underpinning our business case. So we had to go back to our lenders, or, or I should say our our, our prospective lenders, prospective the lender, credit yeah, agencies, yeah. and say, the business case that you're diligencing and underwriting right now is no longer valid. Yeah, we yeah. need to uh, rework our plan with Talus. So we've been reworking our plan with Talus. And I think I said on our last earnings call, um, that where we've ended up with Talus is taking our constellation that was 298 satellites, reducing it initially to 188 satellites so that we could stay within the same CapEx envelope we were talking about that talks to you a little bit about the magnitude of some of these inflationary pressures that we've been seeing. And it had a schedule impact as well, because the the, the components that they needed, yep. frankly, are a lot of the same components that are needed. In, so if that's buttoned up with them, then what's that? What's the so, next so step? We're for- still, so we're finishing with Talos right now. I mean, as you can imagine, maybe not, but they're dealing with hundreds of different suppliers. So the pro and they're a, a very rigorous uh, company. The process of going back to them all, getting all their bids updated you know, synthesizing all of that. So we've now uh, updated the lenders uh, with kind of- So they have the answer. So things are are effectively done with Talus in terms of the most- Things are are finishing with Talus right now. But the lenders have have been- The lenders have- and the there's no shop. major. There's been no major surprises on that front in terms of that those updated and and what's what the vendors have seen. So have they given you some perspective timeline? So on we're, we're 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 in in discussion with them right now. We're yep. we're, we're finishing the process with Talus. It comes in, you know, first estimates, then you know a, a firm pro. So we're doing that. We're reengaged with the lenders. It's it's a process, and yep. so. And so we are, the good news from, from our perspective is that we're able to re-engage with them right now. We've got an updated, you know, plan. The, yep. the most frustrating part was having to, you know, kind of pause and and and, and not be engaging with them right now. Sounds like my, so the next my, logic- my contractors that they just don't return your calls at some point. So <laughs> These guys return our calls. Um, um, 
these guys return our calls. I'm sure um, they do. So, so now, you know, I'm loath to um, throw out a will be done by X date. Yep. We'll, we'll update everyone when we put out our. And is this having any impact in your sales cycle on the contract side? Yeah, I mean, well, it is because because the 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 customers and we're dealing with large enterprises. You know, yeah, yeah, very sophisticated large enterprises, folks that we know well. They want to know um, that you're moving forward. They want yeah. to know a hard schedule. They want to see you. So is this like a domino effect? I mean, you get done with Talus, the expert credit agencies come in and all of a sudden we start to see bing, bing, bing. Some of these, some more headlines in terms of. That's what's going to happen. That, 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 that is, that is what's going to happen. And and then ultimately what's the, what's the incremental margin for this revenue? Obviously you have the CapEx associated with, there's some OPEX in terms of bringing the signal down to the ground. But, but I think historically this is what 70, 80% margin business. Yeah, right. I mean, that's exactly right. You look at our, you know, reported numbers over the last 15 plus years. Um, yeah, our our, you know, adjusted EBITDA margins are mid 70s. They've been, you know, as high as low 80s. Um so you and, have so you make so you make what is, you know, we'll see what the exact number is, 5, 6 billion dollar investment. You ramp up a revenue stream that's tapping off of a $200 billion segmented, like truly addressable enterprise market where you pick up several billion dollars of recurring revenue at a 70, 80% margin on three to five year contracts, maybe in some case 10. And that's, that's it, right? I mean, so it's just a matter of- Look, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's in many ways, it's a different architecture, but in many ways, it's our same old business model that's exactly right. It's why we're so bullish about this opportunity. It's why, you know. So what, do, what do you think the desk disconnect is in the market? Meaning that, look, I get it's a different market relative to Starlink. Starlink raised in the private market and, and the implied valuation. You know, if you strip out what you think the rocket business is, is, you know, tens of billions of dollars. Yes, it's a different end market, but the concept of connecting people, I think, most investors are kind of over the hump, right? There's plenty of there's plenty of examples of how the Leos work, low latency, connectivity. Yes, it's a different market, but like it works. It's a matter of getting a percent. Of, where, do, where do you think the disconnect is in terms of, um, you know, I think belief in your ability to execute on, again, multiple billion of revenue at a high margin for, you know, a five, $6 billion investment. You know, what, what, what we believe is that the market wants to see us finish with Talus, secure our financing, start to build these satellites and start announcing pre-launch deals. Mm-hmm. That, 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 that's what I think. Now, can we be doing more to help educate the market uh, open up more on the business case and and you know to your point Walter is this a top you know down kind of business case is this you know built you know kind of forensically meticulously from the ground up I, I think I think we need to do more of that right now as you know you also probably know we don't have a lot of free float out there right now just in terms of you know, just the volumes that are that are out there when Telesat became a public company. We didn't make an equity issuance at the time. So, so I think it's all of those things. But I think fundamentally what um what the market wants to see is okay, you know, we un- we understand, you know, that that you're working on this uh light speed constellation, but we want to know that you're financed uh, and that you're not gonna, you know, have to be coming to the market looking to raise, you know, so much equity that. That that maybe represents you know uh, um, an overhang uh, in terms of I, I think. It's I mean, some do, you have, do you have do you have any doubt that you will get to the finish line um, with the export credit agencies in terms of this financing? Meaning that is there risk that the investors should think about in terms of you know other types of financing that you're going to need to pursue, or or do you think you're far enough along that you've got good visibility that there will be some outcome in terms of this finance financing? You know, I I would say that at this point in time, you know, we are and remain cautiously optimistic mm-hmm. that we're going to get there with the 
export credit agencies and 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 have all the financing that we need. Um, in all truth, it ain't over till it's over. Sure. Frankly, I I thought that we would have been done last year. I didn't anticipate all these supply chain issues. I didn't anticipate you know this uh, kind of you know quite stark inflationary environment we're in. Um, I think we're putting the pieces back together now, you know, dealing with the supply chain, dealing with the inflation. But but we, we've got to finish these discussions with the lenders, with the financing sources and and get this done. So I, I would certainly not say oh, a thousand percent we're done here until we're done. You know, we ain't done. Um, but I but I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. This is a very compelling business case. We have very supportive, uh, a very supportive board of directors. We have two large shareholders that, you know, have continued to be very, very supportive of this project. We already have significant contractual backlog. I think Telesa has a pretty good track record in terms of executing, particularly in these vertical markets. Um, we've had very strong support from the government of Canada. Yep. Uh, which and we'll get, I think, we're going to, we're going to get to that. I mean, I want to talk a little bit about technology and a little bit about the spectrum aspect as maybe a future um, monetization opportunity for you. Just wanted to point out for any of our live attendees, if you had questions that we, you haven't addressed or we haven't addressed in terms of market size or whatever, again, we'll get into a couple more items here. Um, you can just pop them onto the Q and a or the chat, either one. And, and uh, I can, I can fly them for Dan. So on the technology side, you know, Iridium is a company that we follow. And, and one of the things that always resonated with me is that all of their satellites communicate with each other. So there's instant connectivity, although obviously narrowband. So it resonated when when you were talking about your constellation and having that the satellites could communicate together, but specifically with laser connectivity. And again, if you look at some of the the main the uh, mainstream media coverage of of um, Starlink today. That's one thing that they have not had up to this point. I think they're adding it, even in our own discussions with people that are evaluating um, Starlink and and um, and OneWeb and whoever. That seems to be a component. Can you talk to us uh, about the importance and what specific applications that you think you're going to be more successful in winning in that two hundred billion dollar enterprise market? Because your satellites are connecting uh, with these very high-speed uh, links. Yeah, we call them intrasatellite links. To your point, they're they're optical links. They're optical lasers. Um, we think that having that capability is critical for certain verticals, uh, and also just gives us advantages in terms of how the constellation operates. So we think it's the, that capability is very important for the aeronautical market. Right, you can picture an airplane over uh, the Pacific Ocean, over the Atlantic, over the poles, over an area where the satellite that's providing the connection to that airplane can't see an Earth station to connect a gateway. To. To, right. So for our, to, for our listeners, our podcast listeners, think of a triangle like the airplane's in the air. It has to go up to the satellite and has to connect down to the ground. If it's not connected to, if there's no ground underneath it. And there's just ocean. It has to find a connect connection to the ground, and these inner satellite links basically hop from one satellite to the next until it can drop back down to the ground. And it's doing it at the speed of light. Um, and so, so that so we think it's essential for the uh, aeronautical market. We think it's essential for that same reason, pretty much for the maritime market. You have these ships in remote areas, and we think it's essential for the government services market. One, because they're operating also in remote areas, including at sea, including in the air, but also from a security perspective, the ability to um, access our constellation from any point on Earth and determinate that communication, send those bits to any other point on Earth without ever touching the terrestrial network is very, very important. And not only can you do it at the speed of light, but you can do it completely securely without having to worry about right. Without having so, to worry so, about where I else. Mean, I, I guess what the way I would relate that is um, you have a military um, mobile cell site that's in the Ukraine 
that rather than terminating in an earth station in Germany or some other country can go all the way back, um, you know, to the Pentagon and connect there with ever, without ever touching a terrestrial network that travels through uh, another, another country. Yeah, and the U S government isn't the only entity that cares about having that sort of security and whatnot. And then, and then in addition to those verticals, and and why having those inter-satellite links is important. Think also just about the resiliency that the network has. If any one satellite has a problem, it doesn't matter. You just route traffic around it. When you think about the number of gateways you need on the ground, you just need fewer of them, right? So that's less capital intensive. When you think about your ability to route internet traffic, route it in ways that are efficient, routed in ways that might be more secure. You can do all of that. This, with the inter-satellite links, the, the in-orbit satellites just become a big mesh, space-based, highly resilient, highly flexible uh, IP network. It's, it's So do you think this ends up powerful. being, I mean, I guess, let me skip, I'm going to come back to this, but, but ask the, the, the first question, which is when you think of the Leo constellations that are out there, we're aware of Starlink and their target market. Obviously OneWeb is out there. Amazon is, is I think at some point planning on, on launching satellites. You've got some international um, versions of this. Is this something that's a, from, from what you've looked at in terms of the competition, is this differentiation for you because you've specifically, you know, de- are deploying or plan to deploy um, these optical links, or do you think it's just kind of table stakes that all of these constellations will have to have? In all truth, I think over time it'll be table stakes. Mm-hmm. Um, is my own view, just like in geo, high throughput, you know, beams have become table stakes. Um, but that that's we would not proceed with a constellation like this without having the optical inter-satellite connectivity. Um, I think everyone, if if you're going to be effective with a a constellation like this, now maybe it's a little bit different if you're just focused on the direct-to-consumer market, you know, certainly maybe less of an issue. But when we think about, you know, the capabilities that come from, from having that functionality, it, it, it's powerful. And what about mobility? Just in this, this my second and probably the last in the technical question. I mean, I think there's been, you know, Elon is, or excuse me, SpaceX has talked about, um, you know, they have a deal with Hawaiian airlines. I'm not sure how many planes they fly. I don't recognize the second one, but then at the same time, when they're announcing connectivity to RVs, there's been discussions about mobility. Like how challenging is that? Is that a part of your, um, a it, part it, of your, it, it's a big part of our business case. Um, it it shouldn't be terribly challenging. The antenna that is you know tracking these Leo satellites already has to have the functionality to yeah track things. So so having that and and we we do it today, right? I mean we're providing um, connectivity to airplanes today, to cruise ships today, to mobile vehicles today. So, so it, it, it's, it's not a challenge. Uh, it's not a challenge. Right. So that's not something that you think, you know, even though there might be some report, I mean, look again, Elon has tweeted about this specifically in terms of more work to be done in the mobility, but you don't think that would be something that would help to differentiate you in, in, in the market in capturing an even greater share. I think that the way we've architected our constellation, we will have certain competitive advantages serving the mobility market because of the intrasatellite links, which we already talked about, because of the each of our satellites have antennas that can uh, digitally reform and dynamically reform their coverage. And it allows us to, yeah, uh, dynamically uh, shift our capacity and coverage. It allows us to aggregate capacity over airports, over ports, over over busy um, uh, traffic areas for planes, for ships, that I believe will give Telesat and our and our Lightspeed constellation an advantage in the market. I mean, in order for you to be successful and drive revenue as quickly as possible, do you need to focus on one or two or three verticals more than others? Like, is airplanes 
I mean, I know earlier you mentioned maritime is and terrestrial and connecting terrestrial wireless networks is kind of the low hanging fruit. Again, we're five years out. We look at you know hopefully a multi billion dollar revenue stream. How does the mix beyond those kind of two low hanging fruit? How much do you end up getting into airplanes and and other applications that we haven't yet discussed? I think it's um, it's it's a fundamental part of our of our business plan already today at Telesat. I don't know. Arrow is making up, I don't know, at least five percent of our of our total revenues. We think we're going to be able to address that market in a transformational way relative to what we can do today with Lightspeed. So, so Arrow's a heavy. Well, Viasat for me was transformational on my JetBlue flights for a period of time, and now it's not so transformational. Wait, wait, do you experience? <laughs> wait, do you experience what? Um, these Leo constellations, our Leo constellation, I think in particular, is going to be able to deliver in terms of speeds and just in terms of the quality uh, of the connectivity. And by the quality, I mostly mean just the user experience. Again, how fast your pages are loading, your ability to connect up to your company's um, uh, you know, a cloud network, just all of that. Things that, that just you know you struggle to do today. I just wanted to also touch a little bit on, um, you know, there's any type of connectivity requires spectrum and there's a demand for terrestrial spectrum. And, and people might be familiar with the term C-band spectrum. It's what's been um, touted in the U.S. as spectrum for 5G. And, and there was some, I, want, I don't want to go into the details of the back and forth that existed historically between you and the government, but there's still an amount of spectrum that remains in your control, which I believe is sized, let's call it about 200 megahertz of spectrum. And that you could theoretically with this, and maybe I'm wrong, you can correct me on that. And you can operate on, let's say hundred megahertz of the spectrum so that you could, this additional hundred megahertz of spectrum could be made available to the Canadian um, telecom industry to provide better 5G connectivity for their citizens. Um, what is the, how do you view the kind of the timeline of the, I mean, clearly I think the operators have demand for this, maybe they don't, but what do you, what do you think the timeline is for the government to try and help you and their citizens um, you know, make this spectrum available? And, you know, is that a possible monetization for you event for you down the road? So um, the, the U.S. is ahead of Canada on this right now, the U.S. So, so we're talking about... Um, Do Canadian regulators care that the U.S. is ahead of them in spectrum that's being utilized for the, a new technology? I think the Canadian regulators care a lot that um, Canadian uh, citizens and businesses have access to state-of-the-art uh, telecommunications capabilities and infrastructure. So, so for sure they care about that, and for sure, um, Canada uh, benchmarks itself against other developed countries in in terms of the deployment of state of the art communications facilities. So, yeah, that's something I think they pay attention to. Um, uh, I say that the U.S. is ahead uh, in in this one particular area, which is um, taking some of that spectrum that has been used by the satellite industry and repurposing it for 5G services. Mm -hmm. Canada has done uh, its own proceeding to do that. They've, they're making, they're reallocating some portion of that spectrum for 5G. They have yet to auction it yet. The U.S. has already auctioned it to uh, the U.S. users. Canada will do that probably soon. Um, but do I believe uh, that even more spectrum will be needed over time to keep up with what we've all seen is sort of this inexorable increase in demand for spectrum and broadband connectivity? Yeah. Will Telesat at that point in time still have certain rights and be using more of that spectrum in, in, in both rural and you know uh, 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 urban areas yes um I, this, this Socratic uh, method with myself here if, uh, will we maybe have an opportunity then to take some of that spectrum when when I mean, you, you, you know, started your career 
as the regulator. Yeah, I did. <laughs> Not the actual did. regulator, but in yeah. this world. So I don't know. We 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 as an industry have had success doing that. Uh, namely, you know, south of the border in the U.S. Um, I, I right. all I can right. for, is- for our podcast listeners, if you don't um, recall, that you know, the, in order for the Verizon's and the T-Mobiles of the world to purchase, you know, billions of dollars worth of spectrum, there were satellite pay- companies. And Telesat was amongst them that that got paid for um, clearing that spectrum. It was as we've 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 been paid in part. Uh, we're yep. waiting for. Um, so in Canada, uh, there's a similar opportunity, but your relationship with the government here might be a bit better than how the satellite companies were portrayed in the U.S. Meaning that you're providing connectivity for you know via the Leo constellation for people in remote areas of, of Canada. So. So maybe maybe may, maybe there's uh, an attractive opportunity for us to do that in you know the future. Um, the government of Canada has thought about this repurposing of spectrum a little bit differently than the U.S. regulators historically. Um, so we'll we'll have to see. But there's certainly have you thought about that in terms of the size of the check that pot- could potentially get um, written to you either from the telecom operators or you know through the government for that hundred megahertz. Cause it's a, that's a wide band of spectrum that has, you know, in most developed markets has resulted in very sizable numbers. We think the spectrum is very valuable. Um, the, 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 the larger question up here is, is whether the satellite operators will be able to participate in any of the value opportunity there. Um, we have not had success uh, doing that in Canada to date. We, we tell us that, Maybe there's an opportunity to have a better outcome in the future. But Walter, I think I've got time. I think we've got time probably just for no, that was more. that was that was my final question. Oh, I'll okay. Just throw it back to you and say, was there anything that we did not cover that you wanted to hit upon? I mean, I think it was a pretty thorough was I think it was great for people that um, to get a quick intro of the opportunity that you have there. Um yeah, no, and as look, um, we covered a lot of ground. I really appreciate. You being a knowledgeable, uh, thoughtful person around around this sector and around the opportunity that low Earth orbit satellites uh, present. Um, no, I guess I'd just maybe j- just like to note again, we think there's a massive opportunity here to grow our business profitably with the Lightspeed Constellation. We have a lot of very good building blocks in place right now as we move forward with our project in terms of all the 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 um, capital that we have on our current balance sheet, the free cash flow that our business continues to generate, the strong support that we've had from the government of Canada to date, the meaningful contractual backlog that we already have, and then just our deep understanding and expertise serving these four growing verticals that that we've served I think very effectively over the past few decades. So, so no, it's incumbent upon us to be out there more, speaking with investors and and helping them understand. I think the promise of this opportunity, and that's why I was so glad, uh, Walt, when you invited me to uh, chat with you about uh, about our, our Lightspeed plans. And thank you, Dan, for for going through this. I think it's it's, it's gonna, people are going to have to learn more about this, and and hopefully once you get all these contracts done and we see more press releases, it'll be more tangible in understanding how this is going to ramp to billions of revenue. So thank you again, Dan. Have, everyone have a great week. Perfect. Thank you.